going to record, you're going to record. And then, and then when we're done, I'll take the recording out, turn it into an episode. Magic. Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. We are talking about books on this particular episode, a specific book, This Sweet Sickness by the great Patricia Highsmith. And I'm here with the great Chris Funderburg. My name is John Cribbs. Chris, how you doing? I am doing great, John. We are recording at eight in the morning, which is normally you and I record at night after our kids are in sleep and our day is done. So we record at like 10, 11 o'clock at night is our normal time. We've switched to eight in the morning and um, I am extremely tired. This is I know, just the I way know you have the a world's been turned upside down by the pandemic is that we get up this early to record a podcast. Now that we're afforded every opportunity to sleep in, we're up <laughs> early in the morning for some reason, just because of lives dictating that we must put our podcast. It's because of the things that compel us to stay up until 3 a.m. watching The Gauntlet. <laughs> Wait, that's not the episode we're recording right now, is it? Uh, this is I how so. I am. Are, are we talking about Clint Eastwood's The Gauntlet? No. Oh, God, am I going to have to cut off this? We'll leave it all in. This will be a delightful <laughs> Easter egg for audiences. We are talking about one of my favorite books, This Sweet, uh, this sweet Sickness, one of my favorite books by an author I really love. I would say of all the authors... Normally, when I have a favorite author, I'm like a completist. I read everything by them. I see everything I can. Highsmith, I would say, of all my favorite authors, is the one where I'm like most a novice. You know what I mean? Like, I've read most of her books and short stories, and I know a fair amount about her, but she's somebody that, to me, is still like um, unexplored territory. She's still like exciting to me in some way as an author, uh, even though like I so much love her work and particular love this book, it's still, she's somebody that, that maybe she's just unknowable. She's, she's well, a very obscure kind of figure or yeah. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, it brings up an interesting thing about com- uh, being a completist. Do you think you might subconsciously be kind of storing some of her novels and stories for some later date because you know, there will never be, more uh highsmith new highsmith stories oh maybe you want to like space it out in your mind a little bit like you know i'll eventually get to sweet water it's going to take a little or deep water it's going to take a little while yeah Uh, that's interesting because i came to her late it wasn't until like my my mid-30s that i found her books um like i just been put off because i dislike the film version of purple noon so much and i also am obviously no hitchcock fan so strangers on a train and purple noon are the things so heavily associated with her it took me a really long time to read her books and be like oh these are so much better. Raymond Chandler is right. Strangers on a Train is, what does he call it? It's like mush-headed garbage for Hollywood idiots. He has that really harsh letter where he's trying to get his name taken off of Strangers on a Train. But um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, But so I came to it late. So I think that's as much as it is. But you're definitely right where there's a few authors now that I'm nearing like 
totally having read everything they've written that I slowed down to not rush through to the end with them. That's definitely true with, with a few of my favorite authors like Jim Thompson. Uh, you know, I've definitely got a few I'm saving up to get to finally and, and stuff like that. That's, that's interesting. One thing I think about a lot is something you told me where you kind of stopped watching Kurosawa films. And I was like, that's very strange, John. Like, what's, what's up with that? And you told me that you were going to, because you had watched them so much, you were going to cool off. And then when you turned 50, you were going to watch them all again like it was watching them for the first time is what you wanted to do. And I think about that a lot uh, because it is at our age and especially you and I who are, you know, obscurists as well, who have, who have done the uh, deep perusals of the catalogs of everything where every author and artist were interested in. Um, you definitely, the deeper you go, you don't feel like, wow, there's so much more great stuff out there in the world. You go, wow, there's a, there's a lot more like B plus, B minus kind of stuff out there. But the great stuff, I, I might have read it all and seen it all already. Maybe not with Reddit, but with seeing it, I definitely get that feeling of like, how much great, like truly great stuff is there left out there that I'm going to get to see for the first time. So, so that's interesting that you say that. Yeah, with Highsmith, it's hard to tell, too, because I read, like, one of her books that was written after the 70s and was really disappointed by it. So I think in my mind, I've had this set of, like, don't, like stay away from everything post-1980, yeah. you know? Well, you can That's see it in the thing. Ripley books that they do get curdled by the end. But, um, but Rafferty, who apparently, who's my favorite film critic, and he's also a great literary critic, wrote the only review of Highsmith's work that she ever liked, apparently, in the mid-80s for um, Found in the Street, which I've never read. And so I'm always, and that's one of the mid-80 ones. I think that's like 85, 86, maybe it's later. Mm. And yeah. so I always think, oh, Found in the Street is like on my list because it has such good associations with both a critic and an author I love. But I agree with you. The late Ripley books are like, eesh, lady, you know. She's, she's definitely an acidic negative she's she has look man she has both misogynistic and homophobic tendencies despite being a gay woman and some of the and in the late ripley books that stuff comes out i think also because she's come to hate this character too that she's forced to write just for you know financial reasons basically and so i don't know you're right that's interesting yeah that 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 there's a chance that there's not any good ones left with her, you know, <laughs> but I, you know, I keep, I'm, I'm working my way through fairly slowly with her for whatever reason. Yeah. And even though uh, a plot like this sweet sickness is kind of deceptively simple, it, uh, you get a lot from the reread I found. Yeah. There's a lot of cool, there's a lot of good layers in this book. So she's definitely someone worth revisiting. It's not yes. like, you know, you read something and you're like, okay, got it. Got all the twists. I got, you know, it, it all's pretty straightforward. And then you go back and realize, oh, there's actually a lot more to kind of appreciate about these stories. Yeah. Well, the ones I like, I've already read multiple times. You know, mm -hmm. I think this is the third or fourth time I've read Sweet Sickness. I've read the first Ripley book that much. Um, Cry of the Owl also obviously is another one I love. And then, and then her short story book, Little Tales of Misogyny. I've read every story in that probably 10 times because they're such like acidically hard. It's like Edward Gorey for adults or something. <laughs> short stories, they're just so 
hilariously mean-spirited and negative and just in such great little bite-sized chunks that you can go go through that um yeah little tales misogyny is just a great title too (laughs) yes and it's and it's funny too i think that there's an approach to it when i before i was really familiar with her i was like oh she's a gay woman she's famous for writing price of salt which is adapted into carol uh this is going to be like some feminist progressive thing this will be interesting that's an ironic title in some way but no she's like here's the worst things i think about women (laughs) (laughs) and it and it is i mean she's she's obviously a controversial figure she's she's a virtually on a personal level uh impossible to defend figure that's another thing with her that's also different than what i normally do i don't read biographies or autobiographies in all but the rarest of cases i just read the work like i genuinely don't care about the person behind it i'm not curious to know about the lives of authors i liked i don't you know, I can see from the uh, publication dates, the era in which they were published and contextualize them. Uh, I just don't do that. Like, I don't watch the supplemental materials on DVDs. I just read and watch the work itself over and over. With her, she's somebody that when you dip your toe in her uh, and you say, oh, I really like this, people go, uh, eh. And it is because off the page in her personal life, she's impossible to defend. She's an Mm -hmm. utterly impossible to defend person. And so she's somebody who's much better contained to, to just her work and not discussing her in any way. Um, And, but, Still, when you have that reaction, I was like, well, what's the deal with her? And so I've read about, a lot more about her life and who she was than I normally do with, with, uh, with the authors that I like. Like, I couldn't tell you anything but the basics about who, again, Jim Thompson or, or, or Charles Williford are. You know, I know the basics, but, you know, I, I have a tendency on the authors that I really love to just read the work itself. Yeah, well, Highsmith, I mean, is just such a you know, singular figure. I mean, you know, an American expatriate living in Europe and then having such a kind of sinister sort of, you know, double life that she was had that like her character, she had this sort of front, you know, for for the world while yeah. throughout her life and was just sort of, as you said, sort of a self-hating kind of person in general, something that really comes out in a lot of her writing. Yes. I'd say like the filmmaking equivalent and uh, it's funny because when you when you think about when you when you said High Smith is someone you can't really admit to loving because of those things, I think that there's enough of a filter with things like Purple Noon and and Strangers on a Train. When you say I love High Smith, you're like, oh yeah, I love Strangers on a Train. Um, Catherine Brea is a filmmaker who has no yeah. such filter, you know, <laughs> because yeah. you're, it's all in the work and it's all directly right to you. But I think. It has a sort of similarity. And a similar sort of like um, championed by feminists until they read the actual work or see the movies. <laughs> yes, exactly. That, that uh, sums it up perfectly. That, that they're sort of icons of uh, clueless, unwitting feminism in some way. Mm-hmm. That it's just like, oh, a really great woman filmmaker or novelist. I support that until you dig into it and you're like, oh, this is not what I meant at all. That is not what I'm thinking <laughs> at all in any way. Um, and same thing, you know, Breat, famously, uh, she really hates when she gets called a woman filmmaker, a female filmmaker, a feminist filmmaker. She, she goes after interviewers quite rapidly when they 
say that to her. And, and I think it's because both of them have in their books, have an, or, or artworks, Brayat and Highsmith have an approach that that's much more complicated uh, than, than a political point of view. They don't want to let anyone in their books off the hook at all. And so that doesn't work in a political schemata. They're not trying to say this is how life should be lived or not be lived. They're trying to talk about specific characters in a specific context and to try and reduce it to a generalized political context works against what they're trying to do as artists. And I think that's a lot of, uh, of the tension there as well is that they're both have so much irony uh, in their work um, that it that it doesn't do any good to say these are expressions of a political point of view and they're acidic they they're they're authors who want to burn down the foundations of of uh, of ideologies and political beliefs and sort of self delusion and stuff like that they just pour acid on everything you can't build up with these authors you know what I mean? Uh, with her yeah. and, and Brahiat, they, they, they burn things down. They destroy things. They pull veils away and tear off masks and, and all of that sort of thing, which is as a project, as an artistic project is at odds with presenting, um, stories that can be digested and regurgitated as political talking points. Yeah. And with this particular book, and we'll get in more into it, obviously, once we get into the meat of the story, um, but also in the Ripley, a lot of the Ripley books as well. It's interesting that how Highsmith uh, tackles the kill, the, the criminal, you know, the, the man that yeah. she's following and makes them sympathetic. It's not in a conventional way where in oh, some, you know, yeah. in some cases it's like, well, you know, this person obviously was desperate or they were kind of backed into a corner in the case of Highsmith, I would say more than anything for this particular character, character, David Kelsey, especially it's a very like, get the fuck out of my business you know yeah. it's like get i want my privacy it's like really what compels him more than anything to like really lapse into like psychosis is he just does yeah. not want other people up in his shit and that's something that is hilarious because it's something that we can all identify with but none of, none of us nobody i think would ever say oh i totally get that you know would never admit to saying that's something that i felt myself it's she has a talent for making you loathe people who are in the right, like Freddie Miles or Mrs. Grant in this book, and identify people with people who are unquestionably in the wrong. And yes. I think that that's that's not to try and interpret that in political terms would be a bad idea. You know, you're not supposed to go, David Kelsey isn't insane and shouldn't be in jail just because you identify with him, you know, and because the author positions you do identify with him. That's, it's bad politics, you know, to, mm -hmm. uh, but it's what she's doing and it's what she's after and what she's about. You know, uh, I completely agree with that, that it's, <laughs> you read her books and you're constantly like, God, like this, look, I know David Kelsey's in the wrong, but these other people, I fucking hate them, you know? Yes. <laughs> like, I agree. Look, David Kelsey is wrong and should be in prison. Yes, I get that. I understand. <laughs> but you see what he's saying? You can see what he's saying. <laughs> um, and, uh, 
And that's the kind of irony that she loves. That's the kind of misanthropic irony that she specializes in, um, which is if you, if you are interested in this kind of thing, you have very few choices, but Highsmith, not only is she the best, she's like the only one out there. You know what I mean? Like if you, you know, there are a few uh, uh, artists like that where if like, if you want something like Fassbender, you have Fassbender and that's it. You know, there's not a yeah. whole genre of Fassbender type films. And it's the same thing with Highsmith. Why don't we, why don't we get to our pairings and dig into the book itself? Yeah, I've, I'm, yeah, I'm ready. To, I'm ready to, to talk in specific about it with each of our, uh, 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 pulp fiction selections when we talk about a novel we pair them with a uh, aperitif to ingest before you read the book in question and then a dessert pairing for after you're done with it and I will go first unless you object John would you like to go first what's more no objection life? whatsoever go for it okay so for me with we're talking about the sweet sickness I picked uh, what might be too obvious of a choice which is Eric Romer's A Good Man Marriage, which is about a young woman. It's one of his uh, comedies and proverbs, which are a film cycle that he did. Uh, Romer's famous for his film cycles like the Six Moral Tales, the comedies and proverbs, the season cycle. And I love the comedy and proverbs. I think they're much better than the moral tales. This is May, I was going to say, this is maybe my favorite of the comedies and proverbs, but that's not true. It's my third or fourth favorite, but it's still phenomenally good. And each of the comedies and proverbs are built around a proverb, uh, generally of Romer's own devising. And a good marriage is built around the proverb, who doesn't daydream? Who doesn't build castles in Spain? Right? And it's about this young woman who's having like an unsatisfying affair with a married artist who's kind of like a, a slovenly dipshit. And she's a, gu- a good good young woman and she meets like a a slightly older middle-aged business guy and she decides that guy's going to be my husband and I'm going to marry him right and he is like in sweet sickness he is polite and likes her and doesn't seem to grasp how fully she's fixated on him and like when she throws her birthday party he's invited and he agrees to come and he thinks he's going to be like popping into a party, but instead the party is like built around his presence and him arriving and like everything about the party is being planned for this guy who I'm sure imagines coming into a party full of 30 or 40 people and just being one of the guys there and not the entire focus of this uh, young woman's obsessive party. And it's similar to this sweet sickness uh, in that it's about a marriage constructed in someone's mind uh, where the, the person doing the constructing is, is both entirely unreasonable and uh, sympathetic on some level. The movie certainly, like This Sweet Sickness, doesn't want you to hate this main character and think of them as a dangerous villain. Uh, Sweet Sickness does. Um, It's complicated. I don't want to gloss over the complexities of identification in Highsmith, but Good Marriage is... uh, Definitely a similar film and definitely completely sympathetic to the young woman who's trying to marry a guy who does not have the same plans as her. That's great. Romare for me is a lot like what you said about Highsmith and that um, I feel like I haven't fully, you know, dipped into the Romare waiting pool you know there's still like a lot to discover but Good Marriage is one that I do know and that is one of my favorite ones that I've seen. 
Um, it makes me feel like uh, Decalogue 6 would actually be a good pairing, too, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a few what Decalogues. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the lot, theme of obsession comes up a lot in uh, that series by uh, Kieslowski. But also the one, the one that um, I think it's three, Decalogue 3, where the woman shows up and is like, hey, my husband's missing. Can you help me go find him to her ex-boyfriend? And it's clear they've been divorced for a while. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, I got a. I've got two things actually: a book and a movie yeah. for an aperitif. Uh, and I think it speaks to what you were saying also about um, Highsmith sort of being her own genre within with you know within herself. In that, uh, it's hard to say what's Highsmith esque. That's not actually Highsmith. Um, but two things that I kind of thought of when I thought of this book, just in terms of following the uh the potentially dangerous uh character and knowing that something really horrible is going to happen from it the first one is a film from 1995 called the young poisoner's handbook oh by, uh, yeah benjamin ross which is based on a uh, real life uh killer knows the teacup murderer from uh i think it was wartime england and uh, this film follows this young man who is obsessed with, well, he's obsessed with death and just, you know, has a very macabre sort of sense of uh, the world. And he becomes a chemist and he's interested in the effects of poison on people. So he starts slowly poisoning people in his life, um, mainly his coworkers. And the kind of interesting thing about this real life case in this movie is that he gets caught and then becomes reformed and goes out again and then starts doing it all over again. Uh, it kind of falls back into this uh, s- slow serial killing that he's doing, you know, yeah. that he's uh, sort of making all the people in his life slowly sick. And like uh, the um, this book, the other characters are such, they're so pleasant and so superficial that, you know, you almost sort of side with this guy in a way, you know, Ruth, the great Ruth Sheen is one of his, one of the characters in this um, movie. And it's just a perfect example of someone who is, pleasant to a fault that you know you you just sort of are more interested in the complexities of this main character than the sort of you know sunny disposition of everybody else around him that is perfectly uh admirable and perfectly correct but uh not interesting at all so i think it sort of taps into that sort same sort of thing that we were discussing there uh the other thing that's, is a, a, book. that's a great choice that's a the other thing is a book by patrick suskin very famous book perfume the story of a murderer oh yeah which um kind of is a nice pairing too with this one because uh, Young Poisoner's Handbook uh, leans on Clockwork Orange a little bit. It uh, uses a lot of the same music that Kubrick used and has a few uh, visual identifications with that film. And Perfume is known to a lot of uh, film lovers like myself because Kubrick for a long time intended to adapt this one into one of his films and never did. But um, Perfume is kind of a more surreal story about a, again, a young man who's obsessed with the effect of something on people in this case he wants to create this is a man who is a kind of a freak of nature sort of a mutant who has this uh un- almost unhuman sense of smell and can appreciate the nose of crime <laughs> he has a nose for crime uh and maybe he can smell crime i don't know but he um ultimately seeks to well he, he starts murdering several young women to steal their scent from them, to basically use the oils of their bodies to create the perfect perfume that's going to um, have an almost hypnotic uh, effect on people. Yeah, it's almost like a mind-control drug. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, And again, it's a very surreal story. It's set in the 18th century. 
Uh, but again, it's completely through this guy's perspective. And uh, the movie that ended up being made is not, I would not recommend necessarily, but the book is, uh, it's a very, very short book for one thing. It's a, it's a quick read. You have and, any qualifications uh, about not recommending that movie? Let me, let me intercede and say, don't see the terrible movie, read this book. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, read the book and not, and not don't see the movie, don't bother with the movie that Tom Twyker uh, ultimately made. Um, but again, like Sweet Sickness, it's a, it's a breezy read. Uh, I could definitely take it out in two or three sittings, I think. You know, it's that engaging and, uh, and that easy enough of a read. So. Yeah, I agree with that. Those are great choices. And it's funny that you call the that you call this book breezy because I read it very quick. Again, it's a quick read. But these are you and I just have a warped sense. These this very heavy stuff perfume in this. Week, so <laughs> it, they, there is probably for certain uh, people have had certain experiences of life that you would need a, a trigger warning to read this sweet sickness. It's about an obsessive stalker uh, who just doesn't get it. Um, and so, you know, don't expect it to be John Grisham uh, in some way. Um, yeah. But I agree with you. It's like, to me, it's like when you said it's breezy, I was like, oh yeah, Perfume is an easy read. I read that one really, really, really fast too. And probably at around the same time as you, because I saw Young Poisoner's Handbook. It came out when I was in high school. I might've seen it before I had seen a single Kubrick film. Mm. And that was in a phase where I was trying to learn film history and uh and perfume is something that comes up when you're when you're doing your like uh your your self your autodidactic kubrick module perfume and napoleon are like the two things that come up that you know about that didn't get made by the legendarily unproductive and reclusive kubrick yeah and, brian al just becomes this like hero of science fiction in your mind yes <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and I and I saw Young Poisoner's Handbook at virtually the same time, so those things are very tightly tied in my mind. And Young Poisoner's Handbook is is high Smithian, I think is is fair to say as well uh, that it has a, a remoteness to it that you would associate an emotional and intellectual remoteness to it that I think a lot of people associate with Kubrick. That is um, not what I would say about Highsmith, but in a film, reminds me of Highsmith in some mm. way mm -hmm. that it seems that it's again because films are not like books the way they uh, induce emotions and interactions with their audience are entirely different and there's something about that movie that once you said it i was like oh that's a really interesting comparison i don't think uh i don't think she would have made a movie like that what the hell does that statement that i was about to say make I, I i was about to say i don't think she would have made a movie like that but i think she might have been that young guy is what i was going to say <laughs> about yeah. it and then i yeah. realized i don't know what that means um yeah and that's why i chose you know two to say uh well i don't neither of these really capture the spirit of highsmith that yeah. i'm trying to, to to relate here but they kind of do <laughs> you know there's there's ideas there yeah. Yes, Perfume is a great, is just a great read and um, has similar sort of uh, uh, themes about the manipulation and oppression of women within domestic structures, not even the domestic structures in Perfume, but social structures. Whereas Young Poisoner's Handbook, the main character reminds me of a Highsmith type character, but also sort of Highsmith's disposition about the world. You know, that, that, mm -hmm. that, that character's disposition is similar to hers, if that makes sense. 
It, it does. But I think that we can uh, attach both to the book Perfume and the Sweet Sickness, an official Pink Smoke blurb. Breezy, yet queasy. <laughs> Be warned. Uh, the most delightfully, utterly sickening books you will ever read. <laughs> That's perfect. Breezy, yet queasy. The Pink Smoke <laughs> podcast. Um. That, so, so let's this, go. Let's the go. sweet sickness is the film, is yeah. the story of uh, David Kelsey, uh, a young man working as a scientist at a plastic manufacturing company. I believe is what it is. It's right. It's yeah. designing some sort of synthoid plastic. Yeah, it seems like they design mainly um, like covers for chairs and things. I got the sense they design like car seats and chairs and vinyl, that kind of fifties uh, vinyl ish plastic furniture yeah is what it is so he's working this job it's apparently a very high paying job uh he lives a very enviable sort of bachelor life where he has this you know uh not great great job or he has got this uh he's a very private person and on top of it he it turns out has bought himself a house somewhere in indeterminable upstate new york area uh, all to himself that he can go to on the weekends and drink martinis and listen to great music. Seems like he really has it Ooh, going on. Nice until stuff. You... He's got it. If he's got a great vinyl collection, I'm sure. Got a piano. Yeah, no, it's uh seems like a really enviable sort of life to live. Uh, if you're just going to live, you know, a, a straightforward sort of American life, but it turns out that he has a reason that there's a motive that he has for living this specific life, which is that he is, completely obsessed with this young woman that he knew uh, several years earlier who is married who has moved on from him and uh, lives her own life but he is convinced that he is going to present himself in such a way that his intellectualism and his perfectly structured life will appeal to her she will success his his good hair his perfectness as human being his cleanliness his compunction will leave her to uh, lead her to leave her husband and uh and and join him at his house and that he will then have indeed a perfect life that he yes. has you know willed her away from hers into his and he lives in a boarding house near where he works he has a tiny incredibly tidy little room where he lives uh for the week while he's working and he tells everybody not that he's going away to this nice house on the weekend but that he's going to take care of his sick mother who's in a nursing home and that he's been doing that every weekend for two years as he's trying to build this perfect life to induce annabelle to come along with him and a lot of the book is him planning letters to write to her, whether he should call her or not, interpreting her lack of response, reading letters she sent him and reading into every single line and trying to decide how to maneuver her somehow into being in love with him and seizing on the slightest kindness and ambiguity in her words to uh, project a sense of that she's imprisoned by Gerald Delaney. That's his last name, right? Yeah. Uh, who's a, a, all we know about Gerald Delaney is that he's shorter than David and he has fat lips. David makes him seem like he'd be great to be played by, um, by Toby Jones. That's who I cast in his mind that, that he'd be like this little weenie. Yeah. Yeah. This, (laughs) this, this little, this little just wiener. And, uh, and he's like, you know, uh, he, you can picture him looking very handsome that he's a big Gary Cooper type. Who's been, who's the love of his life. Annabelle has ended up with 
Toby Jones. And Annabelle, <laughs> the name Annabelle is is a reference. It's missing one letter from uh, did you, did you did you notice this, John? You got me thinking about this. Mm. Annabelle Lee, the Poe ah. poem about a guy who's so in love with a woman that when she dies, he lays down in the tomb with her and sleeps in the tomb with her dead body. The famous uh, Edgar Allan Poe poem, Annabelle Lee. And Annabelle's name is spelled Anna, B-E-L-L-E. So literally, it's just missing the final E to be Annabelle Lee. Uh, and that is, I think, a good way of thinking about this, that this guy is the physical manifestation of the psychotic romanticism of that poem, of somebody who loves their, their dead lover so much that he met when he was young. That's all we know about the guy in Annabelle Lee, is that he and Annabelle Lee were young, but they loved even more than old people. And then when she died, a bit from a chill that blew in off the ocean, she got cold and died. She has a sepulcher down by the sea, and he now goes down and sleeps with her corpse every night in a sepulcher. And this weekend house for David is kind of his sepulcher that he sleeps in with the memory of Annabelle, who does not want to have him. And it's, and it's a book about the psychosis of romanticizing things, about the psychosis of believing in romance and believing in a perfect life. And what we project onto our romantic partners. And I think that Highsmith, who is an obsessive herself, she's sometimes positioned as a critique of masculinity. But when I read the books, she clearly identifies with David more than anyone else in this book. There, there is oh, no, without a doubt. if you locate, who Highsmith is most sympathetic to in this book, it is David Kelsey, I think without a doubt. And I think it is because she is uh, a kind of cynic who comes from wounded romanticism herself, that she's somebody who clearly wants to believe in a better world, but has been let down so many times that there's an acidity and a misanthropy that, that comes from it gradually over time that seeps into her work uh, about it because her, when she is trying to be romantic in her books, they're quite romantic. She's able to paint these sweepingly romantic pictures of the world. And she does this almost exclusively like the Italian seaside villa in uh, Talented Mr. Ripley or a beautiful provincial living in a wonderful house in middle of nowhere upstate New York out in the woods that's so lovely and well-appointed. She paints these pictures in order to tear them down as a illusions. Um, but I don't think you can paint the picture that well if you don't somehow, if you yourself aren't seduced by it in some way, you know? Mm -hmm. He does paint a picture that's like, this life sounds awesome. What's wrong with this lady, you know? And that's what's amazing about Highsmith is that she's so self-conscious of this psychosis that she obviously yes. had herself, you know? When she describes the house, it sounds awesome. It sounds like a place you would want to live. It sounds like it's perfectly appointed to someone who you know enjoys the good things in life um the the two funniest things i think in this book the two like kind of recurring things that always crack me up one is one is those little niceties that annabelle affords him and the sort of ambiguities yeah the little phrases where you're just like no don't yeah. tell him i'm thinking of you you know yes. don't say things like that to this guy when she he just says don't understand. you love me yeah and she says well perhaps i said those words once just be like no but it's not her <laughs> fault 
It's not, right, she's, you know, I don't want to be like the waitress on always Sunday. She's got to just let him know to his face that she is not interested. Um, well, she doesn't, I, I mean, that's when you just doesn't understand fun. what triggers these yeah. are for this guy. Obviously nobody understands how potentially dangerous this guy is and his obsession. Because uh, but that's perfect. Right. But because we, the readers know there's yeah. little moments just like making you want to throw the book up in the air. You know? yeah. um, and it's also very, make you laugh because you yet. can't, you yell at it the way you yell at a like, don't split up to find the killer. It's that kind <laughs> yeah. of, you know, it's not, oh, these guys get what they have coming. It's it's the like, don't do it, help. And the other funny thing as you were talking about was is the are the descriptions, David's descriptions of uh, this guy Delaney, old man Delaney, as as, as Norm Macdonald would say. Um, <laughs> Whose belly, uh, I, when he kills him by knocking him out, spoilers for this, He the main thing you get a sense is he David's really disgusted by how soft his belly was when he punched him. That's the main <laughs> thing you come away from is nothing about this encounter other than like, uh, can you believe this soft-bellied little pig? This yeah, little he, piglet. <laughs> his descriptions of him are so vile and so demeaning. You have no idea what this guy really looks like, but the impression I got, because I just watched High Plains Drifter, was of Mordecai, the little person <laughs> of the town that everybody like ridicules and makes fun of, played by yeah. Billy Curtis. Uh, just like the the most physically repulsive kind of person that, you know, these people, he just like looks down on in a way that seems completely unreasonable, but just he paints a portrait of him that makes you just like, Oh, this guy clearly sucks. <laughs> yes. And the basic just to work, go all the way through the rest of the plot is that um, for some reason, probably for reasons of privacy, uh, David Kelsey has registered the name of the house uh, that he's bought out in the country under the name of William Neumeister. And, um, and, in order probably for privacy and one day david kelsey has had enough of uh or not david kelsey gerald delaney has had enough of david kelsey bothering his wife goes to the boarding house a young woman named Efi, who has uh ifrida who has befriended uh david tells delancey tells gerald tells the jealous husband where this country houses this country house that up until this moment that uh kelsey has believed is entirely secret that his house is entirely secret she somehow knows where it is and sends uh the jealous husband there to get david kelsey and delancey gerald confronts kelsey outside of the house he pulls out a gun but seems terrified of of kelsey nonetheless and kelsey sort of shoves him around a little bit even though he's waving a gun in kelsey's face and then clocks him once really hard he falls down hits his neck on the stone steps of the front stoop of the place and dies and that also there's something so pathetic about his death too that in some ways it feels like it confirms kelsey's vision of what this guy is that he can just be obliterated totally brought to death with a single punch that Kelsey describes as he's, he's holding off. He's not even trying to punch him as hard as he can. And he still kills the guy. Yeah. Kelsey, Poor guy. <laughs> yeah, Kelsey realizes, although again, this is the trick of Highsmith is that you're definitely like, God, this guy's gross and he sucks. You know, that you have that feeling of, of understanding Kelsey's perspective on everything. I will say uh, before I move on to finish the rest of the plot, every time I reread this book, 
I'm shocked it's not written in the first person. It surprises me each time that it's third person because my memory of it is that it's so entirely inside of Kelsey that it must be first person, but it's not. Um, and that's one of uh, a lot of her books are that way, where if you ask me right now, is Ripley first person or is it third person? I, I, I'm 90% sure it's third person. That number's dropping down to 60% as I'm thinking it through, you know? Um, yeah. She just is so good at putting you, her writing puts you in a, a point of view and a mindset so completely that's shared with the psychotic character, uh, with the deceptive character that they feel first person even as they're written in third person. But so Delaney's dead on his porch. Uh, rather than try and cover up the murder, he puts the body in his car, drives to the police station and says, yes, I did it. I murdered this man with a single punch. It was an accident. This crazy man showed up on my stoop. I have no idea who he is. I'm William Neumaster. This is my house. Don't know who this guy is. Uh, got nothing to do with me. I'll answer any of your questions, police. I'm a freelance reporter. I'm headed out of town. If you need to find me, I'll be at this hotel in New York City. Goodbye. And so the rest of the book is him trying to uh, conceal the connections between David Kelsey and William Neumaster. And so you have the perfect, perfect crime thriller plot where the theme, which is David Kelsey trying to conceal his idealized self being the exact same as the plot, which is that he is trying to hide this murder by concealing the connections to Neumaster, which is, is literally one of the incredibly marvelous things about her writing is how tightly and perfectly she attaches theme to plot. You, you do not have to, it's a one-to-one -one relationship. You do not have to extrapolate. It doesn't need to be a subplot. You don't need to hide. She can just continue ruminating on your theme because it is identical to her plot, which very few crime writers can do. Very, There's another very source of humor in the book, too, that he's gone to these lengths to create this new persona, uh, even going so far as to you know, set up a bank account and get a library card and everything under the name of William Neumeister, specifically to you know, set up this new house and this new identity where he can believe that he is happily married to Annabelle and that he is this different person. And it turns out to be accident completely accidentally a perfect way to elude yes. being uh, put in prison for murdering this guy. It's all just set up by him uh, almost as if he had designed it that way, even yes. though there's no way he possibly could have, which is what throws the authorities off because, you know, why would this guy, who would premeditate for two years to kill this guy in such a strange way and then hide behind this The guy this who was coming identity. after him, you know, he, mm -hmm. that's, that's also the other part of this book is that, it's a great crime story in that he makes the wrong decision constantly. And you say, if you just copped to what happened, there would be no problem, you know? But in yeah, the face yeah. of murder, people, people panic, especially crazy people who fundamentally know they're in the wrong in some way. That's, that's what the, the sense you get about David Kelsey is his privacy is attached to not being able to cope with reality. He's hiding it because he doesn't like being called insane, which means he knows on some level that he is insane. Sharing that kind of self-consciousness about himself that Highsmith, you know, exhibits by writing this book in the first place. You know what? I was going to say it at the beginning. There's a great line early in the book that sums up Kelsey. Uh, 
which is that life was very, very strange, but David Kelsey had an invincible conviction that life was going to work out all right for him. And, um, and that's obviously contrasted by the line at the end when everything, when the walls have closed in of nothing was true, but the fatigue of life and the eternal disappointment. And I think that you have hiding in that first statement, life's very strange, but the invincible conviction is hiding the fatigue of life and the eternal disappointment that that invincible conviction that everything's going to be all right is his reaction formation to eternal disappointment and fatigue that he's a very exhausted defeated person uh who's presenting himself as invincible because he's only known disappointment and failure on some certain level that's a real rupert pupkin kind of philosophy there Yes, it is. It's very Rupert Pupkin in some ways, this book. That would have been a good pairing for this. Um, yeah, only he, yeah. only he doesn't he want just... to get into show business. He wants to get into the, the marriage business. Yeah, he's just sort of trying to will the world, you know, to be the way he wants it to be, even though there's no chance of it ever happening. Yes, he has. It's interesting. He's a character with no sense of self-worth. He has, he has no idea how to place appropriate value on things. So he's constantly giving gifts. Like he gives his friend, Wes Carmichael. Wes Carmichael is, is a, if, if the Mike Lee special is a miserable person who inflicts that misery on their hostage family around them, then the Patricia Highsmith special is the nice enough guy who's trapped in a horrible marriage to a shrewish wife that he refuses to get out of, but like constantly faints at undermining. That is the Patricia Highsmith special. And Wes Michael is the Patricia Highsmith special. The, the nice enough guy who is married to just the most awful woman who sort of faints at getting out of it, but goes back to her perpetually. And, um, <laughs> And Wes Carmichael uh, in this book, like he gives Wes Carmichael his super expensive watch. I forget what the, what the brand of it is. I looked it up to see if it was a real brand. And it's like a $6,000 watch in adjusted money he just gives to Wes. And Wes is like, I'm not sure I can take this. I already have a watch on, by the way. Did you see? I have like a $600 <laughs> watch on. Um, or when he gives the ruby pin that belonged to his mother to the old woman who lives upstairs in the boarding house, the wheelchair-bound woman who he's very friendly with, he has no sense of the value of anything. So he does stuff like, well, if I fill this house up with valuable stuff, that means this house and this life is valuable. Uh, if I fill my own life up with Annabelle Lee, then that means my life is valuable in some way. He has no sense of how to navigate uh, the value of the world, no sense of self-worth. And that's what drives him more than anything is not understanding relationships because he doesn't know what a small world word is worth. Oh, this is interesting. Also in my notes, I wasn't even thinking about this. And then I glanced at my notes as I'm talking about all this. There's a line I wrote down that plays exactly to this, which he says, I love you, Annabelle. I'll love you all my life as he's getting thrown out, Right of Gerald, Gerald Delaney's house. Uh, Annabelle has also had a baby, which he has zero interest in. So he like wakes up the baby. So she's like, you gotta leave. My husband's here. He woke up the baby and he says, as he's leaving, I love you, Annabelle. I love you all my life. And those words, which are either monumental or absolutely worthless, depending on how you take them. He went out the door without even kissing her, which he certainly could have done. 
um, <laughs> but the which are monumental are absolutely worthless is the is the statement of this book where you're reading into these words to see if they're monumental or absolutely worthless that's why he obsesses over the letters right to see if they're monumental or they're absolutely worthless and the only way that's a problem is if you have no sense of the value of anything in the world and I, I would also mention you talk about the humor, the line at the end, the which he certainly could have done, is a funny way to cap such an important sentence where you have his delusion of like, oh, I could have, I totally could have kissed her. By, just by the way, I didn't. And that's what makes it meaningful. But I totally could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should talk about some of these supporting characters because I think, you know, obviously, other than the fact that, you know, David is you know, completely delusional in his goals and, uh, again could have just you know pretty much gotten out of the legal problems by just sort of being honest and just kind of coming forward with his you know what happened and telling the cops the right story he really gets tripped up by other people right yes. <laughs> like the like associations with other people that are unavoidable that he has completely no interest in but sort of the other sort of underlying thing throughout this book is how in creating this different persona that is completely isolated, that involves nobody in the world except for him and his idealized version of Annabelle, he thinks that, you know, he doesn't need to pay attention to anyone. He doesn't need to like, you know, afford the, uh, the, the time to, um, to even associate with other people, even though his association with these people is something unavoidable. Yeah. It's something that's going to be uh, damning completely. Uh, so this character Effie who ha interestingly has her own sort of obsession going on with she's, David. Yeah. She's David's David. She yeah. has the same <laughs> relationship to David that David has to Annabelle, which she imagines that she's in love with him. Yeah. And it's not, doesn't go to the extreme, obviously that David does and, you in know, her own setting way aside her life. In her, in, in, her, in her own way, her own way is to basically to protect him, you know, yes. to constantly, figure out what's going on and know exactly what happened and continue to lie to the police and to Wes and to everyone else. That's her own kind of way of like that. That'll make him love me. If I'm, you know, she stalks him. I'm she's the a one painter who draws pictures of him. She yeah. buys to the police for him all the while. He's like, leave me alone explicitly <laughs> to her. Yeah. He thinks that, you know, this is, she's such an unimportant person in his life and has no part in his narrative that he can just ignore her, even though it's like this woman who knows everything and could completely get you tripped up. You should probably pay attention to, <laughs> you know, you should probably yeah. uh, not just dismiss her and not return her calls. Uh, you should probably, <laughs> you know, get on top of this, but he's so single-minded that he thinks that it's not necessary. And the same with Wes. Yeah. Where he feels like Wes is just such, you know, a guy not worth his time. He doesn't realize that Wes is very, very slowly, getting the picture and yeah. you know very slowly going to come in and he just becomes someone who taunts him when you know they just you know get together and have these drinks and eventually he realizes that he has this weird obsession with annabelle and uses it against him yeah in like really mean ways yes well because wes sees it wes has designs on ify and when they meet ify together 
Wes clearly has the idea, I'm going to leave my awful wife for Efi. I'm going to hook up with this hot young woman and that'll be my way out. He moves into the boarding house for a time to be close to both of them because Efi also lives at, lives at the boarding house. And I think he becomes very resentful of David Kelsey because Efi is obsessed with him. You know, the way that, so <laughs> the way that, uh, Gerald Delaney is resentful of David Kelsey. Wes Carmichael is as well. One interest, other interesting thing about Efi is I think her name is clearly a, re- a reference to Efi Breast, which Fassbender made a movie of, uh, which is about a, a baron who, before he's a baron, when he's a young man, he's spurned for his social class. He gets himself rich, marries the daughter of the woman of the aristocrat who spurned him, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of to get his revenge. He does what David does. He becomes an incredible success. He marries the hot young woman and she's not in love with him, right? Ify is not in love with the Baron and she's writing all of these impassioned letters to the man she actually loves, which are like the turning point of the book, the discovery of these, these, uh, impassioned letters. Um, actually discovered late in the book, uh, now I'm trying to remember the plot of Evie Breast. Haven't read it for 20 years, um, but it's a it's a similar sort of thing about like unrequited love, class status, uh, passions, letters revealing that passion, misunderstood letters, and then there's a duel between the Baron and the like actual hot dude that Evie's in love with. And so it's in a lot of ways this this book is, her name is obviously supposed to make you think of that, that literature classic uh, that it shares some similarities to. Um, yeah. And I think too, um, something else with Wes in his, you know, feelings toward David, I think that he, I mean, he obviously idolizes David in certain ways because of this incidental uh, cover that David has set up for himself, you know, well-paid scientist living as a bachelor in this nice boarding house. The fact that Wes wants to move moves into this exact boarding house with the sort of idea of, Hey, I could do that too. I can be like a free yeah. Roman bachelor. I make his as initial much money as, of, as yeah, and, and if he thinks of his initial idea of, Oh, he has this, like when he forms this theory that he's not visiting his, his invalid mother, he, he's got some nice pad that he bangs chicks at on the weekends. You know, yeah. I could do that. Why can't I do that? And I think as it becomes more clear, that what Dave's motivations are, when it becomes clear that he just has this obsession with this one person for Wes becomes, you know, Oh, look at this hot shot. He's not a hot shot at all. He's this pathetic asshole. And I think that that kind of also has a lot to do with his taunting of him. You know, that like you loser, (laughs) you know, I, I looked up to you. I thought you were like this cool guy. And it turns out you're just this pathetic schlub chasing after something you can never have. But I think he also legitimately likes David. Uh, People legitimately seem to like David in this book before they get to know him too well. And I think there's something of their relationship. He busts David's chops because it's like your buddy who's a fucking idiot. You know what I mean? Like he busts (laughs) his chops the way when you have a friend who just keeps doing the wrong thing, you got to get on his case. You know, and it's not like earnest all the time. Sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, you're going to go see Annabelle and you make a jerk off motion. You know, like that's what you do with your buddies to try and get through <laughs> to them. Like, you know, uh, what, what, what you see about them. West Carrick's are also serve something that's really important to Highsmith, which is the um, idea of the awfulness of marriage that, that David Kelsey can't see that Wes's 
miserable domestic existence is a very real possibility that David uh, can't understand that Wes was in love when he got married. He was jealous of Wes, he says, for the first few months after the honeymoon. That he, and in fact, David is like disgusted that he ever thought Wes had something like he might have with Annabelle, right? And just that like, you can be trapped in a bad marriage, that it is, uh, David is surrounded by miserable single people, miserable families, but in particular, Wes's awful marriage, he doesn't seem to understand that's a possibility, that you can think you're in love and you marry somebody and it's a nightmare. And he takes that so far. His inability to understand that domesticity is not necessarily bliss is his entire problem. And Wes highlights that. The Highsmith wants to remind you that there are big falsehoods between behind romantic ideals. Um, and another thing that, that Highsmith loves to do over and over, this is sort of tangential, though you see it in both David and uh, Wes's awful wife. I can't remember that character's name. Laura? Laura. Yeah, Laura. Um, in her books, Highsmith always uses excessively cleanliness as a sure symbol of mental unwellness and mental unhealth. The, the, it is the, if you encounter a character like Laura or David who keeps things excessively clean in a Highsmith book, that is like completely codified like there's a crazy person. Like we have just introduced you to a dangerously insane person. And that's funny because Highsmith was famously gross. She was like a famous slob who like smuggled her beloved pet slugs on a transatlantic flight by hiding them under her saggy boobs, right? Like she is just like the human embodiment of like grossness in a lot of ways. She's the anti-HP Lovecraft who hated dirtiness above all things. She hates cleanliness. <laughs> she's actually, she's also the opposite of, of Ruth Rendell, the other uh, famous uh, woman crime novelist who in Ruth Rendell, if you encounter a character who like is, you're told hasn't vacuumed their drapes recently, you're supposed to be like, oh, there's the villain in Ruth Rendell. It's the opposite in Highsmith. If you see somebody vacuuming drapes in Highsmith, you're like, crazy person. That's how you're supposed to react. <laughs> One of my favorite sequences. And, and when, he, when he finally goes off the deep end at the end, do you remember he goes home and vacuums his house and washes his shoes in the sink? <laughs> I was going to say something uh, similar uh, in the climax when he goes to, when uh, Annabelle gets married a second time and he goes to confront the other husband, I guess they're, they're at this point they're not married, but he goes yeah. to uh, confront the other guy that she's involved with Grant. and gets into a physical fight with him and he keeps picking up shit after he's like punched the guy, he like picks up <laughs> yeah. the lamp that he's knocked over. He's like slowly, as he's like going nuts and losing his shit and beating this guy up, he's like tidying up the room yes. as, he's, as he's wrecking it. <laughs> yes, he's, he loses his mind so much, four or five men, he's not sure how many, have to grab him and throw him out onto the street from this little apartment building. And you're right, he like knocks over the table too and like resets it and then goes back to punching Grant and his awful mom. Grant's mother is another character that Highsmith, like uh, uh, Delaney, Ger like Gerald, just makes you hate this woman who's absolutely in the right just the way he describes her as like a mewling sow and things like that just this flabby armed woman who talks and like this slangish like oh you're the one who writes the letters you know you're just like <laughs> Ugh. 
she'll get hers. He's a real Adam Sandler character, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it is, it is, it is true on the on the theme of of him resetting everything. Highsmith is always interested in um, when too much order becomes a form of disorder that people who insist too much on order in the world are at odds with the world inherently that there's a kind of mental disorder to insisting on a fundamentally chaotic world be completely in order at all times and that's that's what it's about that's how you know you're unhealthy (laughs) is that you refuse to accept the the unpredictability and uh and chaoticness of the world I think it also um, creates a contrast between the psychosis of David and Effie where her version of like buying a nice house and perfectly, you know, anointing, appointing it for a potential uh, uh, partner is to invite David over and have an orange cake with a D printed on it with chocolate frosting. Yes. You know, like, like a little nook that a, has nicer tablecloths than it. Yes. Is. Like such a sad, <laughs> you know, but sweet little gesture yes. that just perfectly, I think, <laughs> characterizes her of like, this will get him. This will this will win this guy over. Is this nice little cake that I made myself? You know, or this little portrait that I that I drew of him. Yeah, and 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 he's always he's always impressed by her enough that he doesn't. You as a reader, you're like, don't you get it? She's actually a great pair for you. Like she'll do things for him where he's like, God, I hate her. Oh wait, these are nice napkins. Good work, Efi. That's like his relationship <laughs> to her the whole time is like, God, she sucks. Oh, this is a good bottle of wine she got. Anyway, back to what an idiot she is. It's like, <laughs> ah, this is the one you should do. And it's, there's a great line, too, that I'm remembering where she is talking about how she's in love with him and wants to marry him. And he says, oh, you know, he's complaining about women and their tedious obsession with the idea that human bliss is based on getting a man and a woman in the same house together. <laughs> That's his obsession. That's literally his obsession. You know, that he's, he's accusing her of, of being him and doesn't, doesn't have the sense of self-awareness to understand that what he's doing. And it is, and it is too, Highsmith is very careful. Having good taste is really important. The, the, the composers he listens to are like Hayden and Bartok. You know, like he has carefully cultivated tastes. He has a good sense of wine. He knows the best restaurants in New York. He's, he's sort of perfectly tasteful, you know, which I think is a comment on her about the emptiness of good taste on a fundamental level, that you can cultivate great taste, but that it's meaningless on some level. Yeah. Uh, that if it's not tied to a true personality, good taste means nothing that it's that it's an empty gesture and, but then she has Efi has enough good taste that she's sort of what you're saying trying to be him on her own sad you know single woman uh, uh secretary salary kind of thing yeah and the supreme tr- tragedy ultimately is that david you know uh wesson wesson and effie come up to his new house in near troy and uh David is just like at the point of complete, completely losing it because he's just been, you know, tossed out on his ass uh, by this guy that well, uh, obviously Annabelle is going to marry. going to marry her. Yeah. Right, right. So it all seems completely lost for him. So, you know, they get drunk and things get charged and he, uh, 
thinks that Effie is Annabelle briefly, where he walks into the bedroom and sees her there. And when he realizes it's not Annabelle, he lashes out against her and flees the house. Um, and it's at that point where he almost kind of kind of makes a turn. It kind of kind of goes over the hill a little bit where he kind of thinks, oh, uh, I, you know, my value's been placed in the wrong place. And he immediately goes to the old apartment and signs over his life insurance to the kind old woman in the wheelchair. Yeah. Who he's described previously. I love this phrase as um, she said with a small Christmas smile. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's Christmas time. Um, he's realized that, you know, this is a person who actually has value, who he hasn't really placed much value on, that he's going to now make this gesture of giving her this thing. And you almost feel like when he realizes like, that you know other people that he can actually interact with other people and have relationships with them maybe maybe we'll float into his radar for the first time maybe he'll actually come around her and then he finds out that he's accidentally killed her yes he comes home and finds without even remembering it he goes into like psychotic blackouts that are also connected to his drinking in it uh so he doesn't understand what he's done it's interesting that the wheelchair bound woman um is an interesting character. We're told that David's parents died when he was young. Uh, so he was raised by his uncle. And that woman is kind of a mother figure to him that he doesn't seem aware of. Like he acts with true kindness towards her. And her disappointment when the truth starts coming out about the relationship in the papers and everything, because everybody in this boarding house is a busybody and they're all sort of floating around. It's very cry of the owl where the, 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 the neighbors are as much of an irritation as anything. When the truth starts to come out, she seems genuinely sad by it like she yeah. really believed in the goodness of him one of the best scenes in the book is when it's uh christmas or is it new year's eve no it's christmas where he helps her down the stairs in the wheelchair she's bound to the second floor in her wheelchair and everyone's like oh she's too heavy to get down but because he's huge david kelsey strapping stud he gets her down in the wheelchair to join the party with everybody and there's like applause and he doesn't seem to register on him what a good thing he's done but he's compelled to do good things for this woman in a way that that he doesn't seem to fully grasp is what he's missing is a kind of uh that there's just a hole in his heart that that love is not filling up because he's missing parental love and if he just embraced being the good guy he's capable of being that he's naturally able to do that he'd be much happier yeah and that's a kind of another sort of (laughs) bit of comedy that he doesn't feel anything about taking away Gerald, poor Gerald's life, you know, in this, you know, uh, protection of his cover. The one thing he feels bad about is that, oh, this old lady made all these nice things for my mother who didn't exist. Yeah. She knows that it was all bullshit. And bed, bed uh, clothes and stuff for his invalid mother. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is, oh, that's making me like cry. This book, this is my, I haven't, I don't know if I've spread it. This is, this is my favorite Highsmith. This is in many ways my dream book. Uh, I don't know if it's my favorite book. I don't know how to measure favorite book, but there is, there is no book more perfect for me than this book. This is like everything I'm interested in, in life uh, is in this book in some way everything that feels meaningful to me in some way about the world and existence is in is in this book in a very fundamental way um even if david kelsey seems completely 
alien to me. It's not like I feel like David Kelsey at all. I feel much more like Efi or Wes. You know, those those are the characters that I see myself in. But but there's something about David Kelsey that you don't have to like him or feel you're like him to really understand what he expresses about the world. And I think that that's sort of the canard of audience identification is that you're supposed to, if you get a better understanding of the world through a character, if a character helps you see the world more clearly that, and you identify with them, that you like them or imitate their behavior in some way or think they're good because you identify and that's not how identification and understanding works you can get a lot out of the character while having your own personal moral boundaries be perfectly secure as it is a bad thing to stalk women and kill their husbands i don't need to go on the record with that give me a break (laughs) but you can get a lot out of a character who's who's an overtly abhorrent delusional sad pathetic character you know um in in some way but this is just like it's just it's such an amazing book <laughs> yeah well said no it's it's great it's definitely top three high smith for me of the books that i've read yeah um and and personally yeah i have that, have that same identification that i don't quite have with ripley's game or tremor of forgery as much as i love those books yeah um and but those are like absolutely a, terrific it reminds me of my my other favorite highsmith which is cry of the owl and this is sort of an inversion of that that book is about a guy who goes and stands in the shadows and watches a young woman in her house imagining that she's perfectly happy and Mm -hmm. imagining projecting this domestic bliss that he's jealous of onto this young woman who's just going about her daily life. And he's a similar sort of a technical science related success who has a very good life in a uh, small town, uh, Pennsylvania, I believe it is in that book and is obsessed with a, a domestic bliss that he doesn't have. In this case, it's somebody else has it and he likes to go and just watch them and imagine what that life is like. Uh, and he gets caught by her watching him. And from there, there's like, again, there's like a jealous lunkhead that, you know, bites off him more, more than he can chew. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it's, it's, a, it's an inversion of Cry of the Owl, which is my other favorite one. And that was her follow-up to This Sweet Sickness as well. So I think thematically, they definitely yeah. linked. And then also, sure. obviously, you know, I'm trying to think of my other favorites. The Blunderer, which is, is probably third for me, is again, that's, that's the Wes and Laura marriage made the main plot of a book, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. that, that the miserable marriage is the, if it, instead of being a subplot and a supporting character is the main character, you know, it's essentially Wes and Laura's marriage turned into the, the main thrust of the story. And like, um, the sweet sickness, it's never an insistently thrillerish plot. These, these books are very, um, slow burn. They refuse to fall into, uh, genre cliches about how these stories should resolve and where they go they are fundamentally realistic on some level they are they're a contrast to something like raymond chandler which feel like very detective novel detective novels you know that followed that hit the beats of those stories these stories refuse to become what you would expect they would even at the end of this book when he assumes william neumaster's identity fully 
because they realize David Kelsey has committed the crime, he has the idea of like, well, I'll become William Neumaster now. And it's like, that's clever, but that immediately doesn't work because it wouldn't work in real life. Whereas other crime writers, I don't think could resist the deliciousness of now he gets away with it by becoming the guy he invented. You know, that's yeah. like a faulty brain idea. And Highsmith sees it for that as opposed it's, to a delicious twist. It's delightful to me that, you know, the climax of this book is I'll look up my old high school buddy in New <laughs> York. And it's this poor guy. And this is named Ed. Who's yeah, just, he's like just that. a guy. He's just some yeah. guy. I pictured him like, as oh. being played by the Tootsie Roll Owl. He just has that <laughs> about him. Of just like, who, who, who are you? Oh my God, David Kelsey. And David's all over the papers. He's like a wanted murderer, insane maniac. So when he shows up, this guy's wife is like, ah, ah. And he's like, no, we're going to be calm and say hi to David. You need to run down to the store to get some wine, don't you, honey? Ah, you go to the store. So David, how are you? And then he asks him for money. He's like, well, it's nice to see you, but I've got to be honest. I need $150. What do you think? <laughs> you know, just, uh, and, and believing that because he's William Neumaster and everything goes his way, that, uh, that he'll get the money. And he's like, yeah, I got uh, 20. Is that good enough? Um, William Neumaster, who had never failed at anything, he believes. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's good, but it's like all of it. And it also that ending happening in New York where he's sort of dodging cops in Central Park reminded me, reminded me of the um, end of The Blunderer 2, which has a, a wonderful, uh, just out of nowhere, blunt force, ridiculous ending to it that happens in Central Park. Uh, so, you know, read The Blunder also as well. Now that I'm thinking yeah. about the other books, I love those three so much. They're, they're, are they a trilogy? Is that just projecting too much onto it? But uh, they feel very connected to me. I agree. And, and it's also, it's easy to connect this book to Ripley too, which is about uh, a criminal who's projecting a huge amount onto an idealized figure who then kills that figure and tries to assume their identity in some way. That's basically what David Kelsey wants to do here. He's idealizing Annabelle. He wants to kill Gerald and assume Gerald's identity in some fundamental way. Uh, but since that doesn't exist, it's William Neumaster is the, uh, the identity he's trying to uh, assume in some fundamental fashion. It's, it's very shades of Ripley and Ripley's great too. I, I think also I took a while to get into Highsmith because she's so associated with Ripley. And when I read that book, I was like, it's okay. But I read it now and it's fantastic as well. Um, I don't want to force it out of the conversation for her masterpieces just because it's the most famous one. Oh, yeah. And this one is very, very comparable to the first book. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is the also just on the same note about her plots. I am going a mile a minute and talking this whole episode. I, I'm sorry, John, that I just have too much to say that I'm, I'm running roughshod over you. No need um, to apologize. Um, but the, the Highsmith crime story, this is probably the best example of he murders Gerald or self-defense murders Gerald, kills Gerald. Um, and the crime, which seems like that's going to kick the plot into high gear, right? But instead, the crime just keeps receding farther and farther from the protagonist view until it seems irrelevant almost. They sort of keep forgetting 
what the story is, what the crime novel they're supposed to be in even is until it's sort of like he's having this like, oh yeah, I killed that guy. I kind of forgot about that reaction to it. And that is the classic Highsmith story where the, the supposedly central crime you know, you read the log line of this story and it'll be about this thing that just keeps receding farther and farther from view of the story mm-hmm. and of the yeah. protagonist's interests. Have you seen the Gerard Gepardieu adaptation? No. Is he playing Gerald? I, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen it either. Um, but I did check out the um, Alfred Hitchcock Hour adaptation of it, Annabelle. Oh yeah, starring Dean Stockwell, um, and adapted by Robert Block. Oh, interesting. It Robert sounds Block interesting, has, doesn't has, it? That's writer of Psycho. Writer of Psycho. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it sounds interesting, doesn't it? It's F minus terrible. Oh, most, <laughs> it's, most uh, of those Hitchcock TV shows are. Uh, I mean, other than you know the obvious, you know, handicap of you know putting this down to forty-five minutes, it's. It just gets everything wrong, pretty yeah. much. Um, not the least of which is Gerald, who is this strapping huge guy compared to shrippy little Dean Stockwell <laughs> that you're just I like... I just assumed when you now, said Dean Stockwell, he was playing Gerald. No, he's not. He's playing David, uh, mostly with his eyebrows. But um, uh, And again, I don't know, like maybe Block, you know, took it as like, oh, in the book, I think he's just projecting this weakness yeah. onto Gerald. Maybe he's actually a formidable guy but it makes it completely ridiculous the the, the the murder of gerald that dean stockwell would have any physical domination Say, over here's to whatsoever. Fuck, david here's <laughs> to your fuck, david uh i mean block kind of blocks it up it becomes more like psycho than anything you know yeah uh you, you, that, he, that guy became a one-trick pony so fast he became yeah. the psycho guy like he's yeah, standing, you can just picture him standing at a stand in like a mall that says psycho above it and he's standing there with an excited look on his face being like it's me psycho I know, guy and I, and I like block and he's written a lot of great stories yes. um but you're right this came this would have been two years two or three years after psycho and i think you know he, he was just like so what do you want hitch you want uh, sort of the psycho thing <laughs> yeah. for this we doing some uh, more because, psycho magic yeah because david ends up uh, killing Annabelle when she comes yeah. over. He's like, you're an imposter. You're not my Annabelle and kills her. And Effie comes to the house and he's like, come and see Annabelle. And she's dead in the bed. Yeah. And Effie's freaking out. It's just like, it's just not the same story at all. Um, but has those interesting sort of like changes that are like just superficial changes, but like also in, in, indicative of like the wrong direction this is going. They change Effie's name to Laura for some reason. <laughs> and everyone pronounces the name Newmester. Even he does. The way that they famously incorrectly say it in the book constantly yeah over and over he's he's annoyed by people calling him new master like yeah they can't even <laughs> and, but that's also leaning into that this is the new master of david's life kind of thing but also that you know they're getting my fake made-up name wrong this is so frustrating <laughs> exactly so um so it's interesting to you know kind of see these kind of bad tv adaptations of these great books but uh yeah, this is one that just completely misses misses oh, the point entirely. I've never had a desire to to see uh, to look into any of any of the adaptations of it. It's it's a book that you know. Sometimes I feel like ah, this would be my dream project to uh, 
uh, adaptness, but it's but it's also such an epistolary novel. It's so based around the letters, and epistolary novels are obviously about the life of the mind uh, as it expresses itself in words, and that's just it's so hard to turn a movie that's about him waiting for letters and then reading letters in disappointment and then sending carefully worded letters that how do you make that into a movie? I just, right. don't, I don't know how you, you do it when a lot of the tension is him thinking he heard the phone ringing and you're like, wow, he's nuts that he just did that 10 times in a row, you know? Um, and it's, and he knows it's the toilet tank downstairs filling up, not the phone ringing. And it's funny to, to that kind of detail is both absurd, but also true. I think we've all had an experience. I mean, especially me, not in 25 fucking years, probably, but when you really want someone to call you, so you keep hearing your phone ringing. You know, where you, yeah. you're waiting for that call, that excitement or, you know, uh, maybe phrase it for young people, the text from that woman. So you keep hearing your phone bleeping kind of thing. And she renders that so well, but she also renders it as completely absurd. Um, and that's sort of the irony of this is how she maneuvers you into seeing your own lovelorn behaviors in the... Uh, behavior of a total fucking psycho, dangerous. He starts. He starts hearing the sound of his new toilet and thinking that it's the phone, which yes. is something that detail that I love. Yes, because you can, on the one hand, because it's like this is so dumb. How could he make that mistake? And then going, well, I've had that happen. I heard the garage <laughs> door opening and thought it was my phone ringing for some reason. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is good. I think that also this book, just to to bring it back to sort of the the politics of it, there is, I think about, you know, Milan Kundera, I think it's in, uh, uh, not in Testaments to to, uh, Betrayed, in The Art of the Novel, he has like a, a, a lexicon in the back, sort of a dictionary of words that he's given his own little definitions to uh, that are interesting to go through. And he, one of them is he makes a distinction between somebody who's very macho, right? Which is a man who loves to be surrounded by women, have a bunch of daughters, have a girlfriend on the side and just be surrounded by women and somebody who's a misogynist. And the essential misogynist to him is somebody who's in love with one woman and puts one woman above all others, that that's an inherently misogynistic thing to do is that it represents a degradation of womanhood to say this woman is the exception to all womanhood. And I think that Highsmith knows that in this book as well, that there's something very, that there's a kind of violence um, in saying one woman is different than all of the others that you're inflicting on a woman whenever you say that. And I think Highsmith feels guilty, somebody who had famously tumultuous love affairs as an older woman who was successful with younger women who wanted to be in the same field and was notoriously bad with women, that she feels that implication of misogyny, of obsessive love, of a romantic love, that it's, it's a violence you direct against somebody on a certain level, that it's an almost institutional cultural violence that you're inflicting on people to be in love with them in some way. That's great. Um, yeah. What, what more can be, I can keep talking about this book or should we move on to desserts? Well, I'll just say that, we, you know, back to the screen adaptations. Uh, yeah. 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 Sorry and, and how, jump off of that. No, not at all. No, that's great. Uh, 
I mean, the problem is inherent in it. Uh, several years ago when I tried to adapt this book into a, a script, yeah. my idea was, and it was ultimately a failure, which you could, you know, that's the ending sentence of a lot of things in my life, but um, <laughs> was to um, try to have the two stories be completely separate from each other. In other yeah. words, have different actors playing David and playing uh, William Newmeister. Yeah. Um, oh, so like the Fassbender those... despair well, exactly. <laughs> you spoiled my dessert. But oh, yeah. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm sorry. I, I, it's my own fault. Um, and to not, you know, kind of set it up as a twist for the end or anything, but just to have these two stories that for, you know, a good half hour or whatever, the, the audience would be like, what do these two things have to do with each other? I'm completely confused. Yeah. Meld together, you know, sort of come yeah. closer and closer until they just sort of blend into one story. Um, as sort of an experiment to do it, but I think that the, that was just desperation because, like you said, this is a very difficult kind of thing to try to put on screen. That's a good so idea. So internalized. I, I, you've told me about that I, idea before. Uh, I didn't yeah. realize you were going to do that, but I think that's a very good idea. I think you'd have to approach it in that way to make his fantasy life concrete on screen is is a good way of dealing with that you can't be inside of his head to make it mm -hmm. physical and concrete instead i think is a good idea i think you should do it again maybe we just well, talked was... ourselves into into giving another crack at adapting it finding yeah, out maybe. who owns the option and going after him well i know matt damon was really keen on getting a screen adaptation going for a while i don't know if it was right after ripley or what but uh i know he loves this book and was like trying to get it going and oh, matt damon can't get it going casting though yeah, he, he's great casting for David Kelsey. I agree. Yeah, thank you. That's interesting. Um, it's funny, you know, who else would be good casting? Ben Affleck would be good casting for uh, actually a Fleck for uh, Wes Wes Carmichael. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and uh, and Gwyneth Paltrow for Annabelle. Just kidding. You know what's one thing we didn't discuss? What do you think of Annabelle? Do you think, because one of the cops remarks to him that she's a good looking woman and I read the book and I'm like, how interesting is Annabelle actually? And it leaves it deliberately ambiguous, obviously, but he projects her as being somebody who wants to write a monograph on the lyrics of on Mozart and Schubert. Yeah. yeah. And is a serious pianist and these things that he's clearly projecting into her. And it's hard to tell if he's even projecting physical attractiveness because at one point he makes a, a joke about, uh, not a joke, but he, he's in his mind when he's lost his mind and is like hallucinating her there with him. She's put on a dress in their hotel room that, you know, most women wouldn't have the guts to wear unless they were skinny. Do you remember that line about it? And Jesus, you go no, like, and you're like, huh, what is, is she actually a perfect match for, for, uh, for, uh, for Gerald? Uh, what is she actually <laughs> like? And you have no, and that's something you have to decide if you make the movie, uh, is that is what she's actually like. Uh, or you yeah. could, I guess you could pull a shallow how. I guess you could do that. <laughs> and, um, and when it's through his eyes, she looks completely different or something. Um, but well, now that, that those guys are making Academy Award winning movies, maybe they can have the clout to get this thing to screen. Get him on it. Get him on it. Yeah, no, I, it's interesting how guy. much you kind of have to just, you know, infer from, you know, David's descriptions of things. The, the, the idea that she wants to write a, a book about Mozart's music, it probably came from like, you know, his a time lyrics. where she heard... His lyrics. <laughs> right, you can like imagine that like she saw, she heard, she listened to a, a Mozart opera once and thought it was really cool and had like a brief discussion of like, 
I don't know, someone should write a book about this and this. And he was like, Oh, yeah. you want to write a book about that? And that just became like his thing that like she, she comes off as again, if, if you're just kind of inferring from like the, the details you know about her, someone who is sort of meek and really, you know, needs someone to take care of her. You kind of get this picture that uh, her second husband, Grant, uh, a neighbor's son, you know, that the, the, the neighborhood mother, uh, that his mother was the neighbor who came over and consoled her after her husband's murder. Yeah. And then the son started coming over and, you know, being present. And like, yeah. she immediately fixated on like, here's a man who can take care of me. Yeah. I need someone to help me with my baby, uh, which on one hand is completely reasonable. And the other is like, uh, I, she probably is just someone who needs a really strong support yeah. structure around she, her. She seems completely unremarkable. Yeah. Is what I is how yeah. I would describe her, which she's I, obviously that's being built into the plot. That's how we know David is, is unhinged is that she's not this fantastic woman in any overt way is that she's, she's basically unremarkable. She's a girl from, you know, La Jolla, California who moved to upstate New York uh, or Connecticut, where is she? She's not near him. He has to like drive a distance to go see her as well as the other thing. He takes this this job uh, and he blames the job for everything too is another thing that's funny about it. Yeah. Just the reason she's not in love with him are all the kind of lies we tell ourselves about why people don't fall in love with us. You know, is that, oh, it's bad timing or I took that job and it screwed it up. Uh, all of the self-protections we offer ourselves. And that's one of the interesting things about the book that it shares with Ripley is he thinks he's doing a really good job of hiding what's weird about him, but it's plain as day to a lot of people too. That People meet him and like, <laughs> oh, you're that crazy person. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. he's like, I think I did a really good job of winning her over there. And the people around him are like, somebody call the cops. You know? <laughs> right. Um, he's just encouraged by all the wrong things. <laughs> yes. And just doesn't, just doesn't have a, a clear sense of self, but I, um, it's, it's good. Read it. If you got eyeballs, put it in front of it. Breezy but queasy, the pink smoke. It's breezy, but queasy. <laughs> Almost as good as uh, Rafferty's line about like their nightmares that refuse to leave us, to release us from their grip and leave us thrashing all night. <laughs> it's fucking great. Yeah, almost as good as that, breezy but queasy. <laughs> so I'll go into my dessert since it came up already. Uh, but it is funny that you mentioned Effie Breast, uh, since that was a book obviously adapted by Fassbinder, and uh, Vladimir Nabokov's novel Despair was also adapted by Fassbinder. Uh, I associated the kind of delightful absurdity of the whole, the, the situation as David calls it in this novel with a capital S, uh, just the whole ridiculousness of what we were just talking about, how Annabelle probably is just like a normal, pretty mediocre person in general that he is, you know, put up on this pedestal and devoted his entire life to winning over, uh, sort of matches the absurdity of the main plot of despair, which is that this, uh, owner of a chocolate factory, um, sees a homeless man. Willy who he's convinced looks exactly like him that he is his doppelganger yeah. when it is made very clear by Nabokov that they look nothing alike but he constructs this entire idea to disappear by having the man pose as himself and then murdering him and so everyone will think that he's dead and he can get away with it because this he's guy a looks dead exactly ringer for like Quasimodo. him dead, exactly like that, that classic Quasimodo joke um, so I think 
that kind of humor that obviously Nabokov is so good at yeah. is uh, what this book reminds me of in a lot of ways. It's funny because the Fassbender movie is not one of my favorites of yeah. Fassbender. And I think it's one of those things of like two geniuses just sort of clashing and not really melding together in the right ways. You yes. know, I was desperate to see Fassbender's movie when it was unavailable back oh, in the day, but it, it was, was so hard to get. Grails. It was yeah. Grails. We spent a lot of time looking for it, John. Yeah, yeah. It was like, holy shit, like this is fucking Fassbender doing Nabokov. I want to see this so badly. And when I finally caught up with it, it was like, oh, yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. quite work the way that the great Fassbenders do. That's um, actually one of my red flag films when I'm judging people's tastes. If somebody is like, I love Fassbender and they list a few and they put despair on their list, I'm like, hmm, well, I don't trust your taste now, you know? Yeah. It, it's <laughs> it's not that. that it's bad. It's just you should be able to recognize that this movie is not working properly yeah. is what I would yeah. say about it. And it's sort of doing a disservice to the masterpieces to put it beside them. Yeah. No, it's fine. And I think, you know, Fassbender being what he is really focuses on this silly subplot about um, – the guy's wife and a cousin who are obviously having an affair, you know, behind his yeah. back that he doesn't realize. That's just like the kind of thing that I think Fassbender's like, oh, that's something I can kind of have some fun with. Yeah. But does not is not sustainable for a whole film. It's so. it's also one of the films where you feel like his incredible rate of output worked against him, where you just go, This this just needed like another year of development and another two or three drafts on the screenplay, you know? It mm-hmm. just has that feeling of of being lumpy and undercooked. Yeah, that's that sums it up pretty well. But you but should the book see it in the context. Terrific. Yes, book is <laughs> book is terrific, and you should see it too, especially in the context of this week's sickness. I think you're right that in some ways it might be the most accurate version of this sweet sickness we ever get as a movie. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Even though. What is your dessert, Chris? My dessert is Agnes Varda's Le Bonheur, Happiness, oh, as it's sometimes translated as. Yes, this is Agnes Varda's best movie, I think, by a wide margin. It's incredibly beautiful, and it's this sort of artificial, stilted, romantic fantasy about um, essentially a guy who is David Kelsey's invincible conviction that life is going to work out right manifests itself. It's like, what if William Neumaster was real is this movie. It's sort of a dreamy vision of just what if everything you wanted in your domestic life came true and you frolicked with your lovers and children in a field of flowers and whatever you proposed to your wife, she accepted. And, and the, curdling slow irony of it is that this guy getting ever whatever he wants is actually sort of steamrolling the rest of the world around him till it gets to a sort of brutally ironic ending where things go badly for his family but everything works out okay for him ultimately and it's um Agnes Varda is incapable of being mean-spirited. So I think to approach such a sort of uh, acidic theme as this book and such an angry theme as this, or as this movie, um, that she coats it in this very sort of artificial, more beautiful than beautiful style. It's an incredibly gorgeous to look at movie and, and has a real dreamy quality to it. And I think that's how... Uh, with her personality as a filmmaker, she leavens. It's essentially like 
fantastically fatalistic mean-spiritedness of its idea. It's a cruel movie from a director who is not naturally cruel. How about phrasing it that way? Most beautiful uh, cruel movie ever made. Yeah, it's it's great. And it's really singular. If you've seen her other stuff and haven't liked it, I'd say try this one. If you've seen her other stuff and loved it um, and didn't find this one accessible that's also understandable it's different than her other movies in a lot of ways and and i love it i think it's it's just so gorgeous and so well put together and so more in tune with my themes and ideas about the world that that i respond to it a lot more than her sort of uh general good-naturedness absolutely agree one of my favorite movies love it yes um well, John, I'm glad we talked about this. Next month for the novel, we are doing The Moat in God's Eye, and it will be a special Father's Day episode featuring the gentleman who recommended this book for the episode, My Own Father, Isaac Murray Funderburg III, will appear on the episode with us. He is a giant old school science fiction nerd. Not when nerd meant, I have an interest of any kind. I'm a football nerd. But when it meant a thick glasses dork who loved uh, comic books and sci-fi serials and is a huge influence on my life and somebody I adore more than anyone. And I just wanted to have him on for Father's Day and talk about uh, one of his favorite sci-fi novels. and it's and it's a great book, and so that's what we're going to do. Did you have any comment on that? Do you think I framed that correctly? I think it's a great idea. I'm excited, and um, and we can have your dad come on and berate me sometime for being a loud, <laughs> no good friend. <laughs> we can do that next Father's Day, um, and uh, yeah, and we will have an episode coming up uh, in a couple days, the other May episode, since it is Clint Eastwood's 90th birthday. Is it his 90th birthday? You got it. You, later this month, we are going to be doing an episode where John and I, just a very simple tribute episode, where John and I each pick a favorite Eastwood film, one film to talk about. So it's going to be an Eastwood double feature for his 90th birthday. That's right. No horrific turtle dreams in Eastwood movies, but it'll be fun to talk about. Oh, we didn't talk about the turtle dream. (laughs) The wet market dream, as I call it. We're just going to leave it out there. Read the book. Read the turtle dream for yourself. It's so great. It's like Boonwell level great dream sequence too. Most dream sequences in all art are the fucking worst. And this one is so good. The one it reminded me of was Yves Montand in... uh, In Cirque Rouge. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm jumping all over your references today. I'm sorry. I'm just so (laughs) wound up. I'm so wound up for this book. I apologize to listeners if you're sitting there going, let John talk. But I'm completely (laughs) wound up. No one ever thought that. Read this book. It's absolutely phenomenal. My goodness. I think it all the time. And listen to John. He's been on um, Just the Discs a few times recently, doing great episodes with a host who lets him speak. So check out, there's a great one on Let's Scare Jessa to get it at the night tide that I really enjoyed that they just had. And, you know, we got stuff coming up. We got big announcements coming up in terms of the website. And, you know, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Have a good night, everybody. Night.